Well, as Rich mentioned, it's uh, 20-odd years ago that uh, I came to P's and G's. Um, it was Thursday, July the 5th, 1995, uh, 21 years ago, a very nervous 34-year-old uh, stepped onto Waverley Station uh, looking for a guy called Stephen Fishbacker. I'd never met him, didn't have a clue what he looked like, uh, but he was the one who was deputed to come and meet me. I'd arrived for the interview uh, for the post of Associate Rector, and uh, I arrived to be interviewed by the entire vestry, about 12, 13 people. Uh, within about five seconds of walking into the door, I realized I was the only person wearing a tie. So I quickly took the tie off, and it's never been seen since. Um, and um, that was 21 years. And uh, what I'm going to do this morning is just share a bit, looking back, uh, as to what God has done and different things that we might learn. If you're a visitor, um, then I apologize because it might not be that relevant to you. Um, but hopefully um, God might speak to you some reassurance or some comfort or some encouragement. And uh, to the church family, I simply want to say thank you. Thank you for your kindness over the past few days. Thank you for the cards and the emails and the gifts. Uh, that's been really, really generous of you and uh, just very touching. So thank you. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this church. Thank you for its history over hundreds of years. Thank you for people who've prayed and worshipped and witnessed in this place. And as we just take a step back this morning and reflect and give thanks for all you've done, would you speak to us? Would you comfort us? Would you challenge us? Would you give us reassurance where we need it? But also that sense of being led out to where we've never gone before. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that reading from Joshua 1 uh, was the passage that was preached on um, at my licensing 20 years ago. And the passage from Joshua chapter 3 was very important to us uh, about 10 years ago as we were thinking about what God was calling us to do uh, with the building. Um, it is difficult to know what to say today. I did try various friends uh, to come as guest preachers. Uh, each of them said no uh, for various reasons. They're no longer my friends. Um, but um, in the end, it was Kathy who said, well, why don't you just tell the story of the last 20 years? This morning sermon series is called Sharing the Story. Why don't we share the story of what God has done over the last 20 years? There are lots of people who are new to Peace and G's. They won't know a lot of it. And it'd be a good way to say thank you too. So that's what you're going to get. A few reflections, a few memories, a few reminders, a few apologies, a few thanks and uh, one piece of exciting news looking forward as well. And as Rich mentioned, uh, tonight what we're going to do is do something different, um, and Libby's going to interview me, and then we're going to have a roving mic and have questions from the floor. So if you want to know more details about this stuff and, and find out the member of the clergy that I find most difficult, uh, or the best, or who's the person, etc. We're not going to do that. Um, but it'll just be great fun if you want to come along uh, this evening as well. But 20 years ago, Kathy, Josh, and I arrived in Edinburgh. Uh, Josh uh, was two. He just had his second birthday. Uh, he did his final university exam on Friday, which tells you how long it is. Uh, my first Sunday here was the day after England had beaten Scotland at Euro 96 through Gaza's amazing goal. Um, I was told I could mention that once and once only, and I think this is the second time that I've mentioned it since. 
Um, my first vestry meeting was on the Wednesday after when England beat Holland 4-1. That's a photograph of Alan Shearer scoring one of the goals. It's the best performance of an England team ever. I could see it from a flat in Albany Street where Michael Maudsley, the rector, was living in the middle of a vestry meeting. I could see it because the person in the flat opposite, across in Albany Street, was watching the game. And I got the odd glimpse through a television that was about that big uh, in the distance. And it was the best England performance for about 50 years in living memory. And I was at a church meeting. But I'm not bitter. Um, I've let it go now, and uh, I think I'm just about over it. Um, I've heard a church leader called Dave Gibbons uh, about four or five years ago speak about the fact that often you hear church leaders and, and people speak about how people grow as Christians or how churches grow, and they often paint a very, very rosy picture. And they give the impression that that growing as a Christian or church life is a a bit like that graph. So it's just down here and goes whoosh and everything just goes better and it's all just going upwards all the time. And you hear talks like that and you hear presentations and you think, my church isn't like that and my life isn't like that. Dave Gibbons said that in reality, church life is a bit like this second graph and spiritual growth is a bit like this second graph it's much more a series of ups and downs of of peaks and troughs where hopefully the general direction is upward but it is a series of ups and downs it's a series of highs and disappointments it's a series of joys and lows And that, I think, is the reality, certainly, of my Christian experience. And I think it's also the reality of the history of this church, not just in the last 20 years, uh, but for the last 200 years it's been around. The last 20 years, though, fall into probably four chapters, and that's what we're going to look at briefly this morning. Chapter 1 was 1996 to 2001, and this was very much... um, about discerning the sort of church that God was calling us to be. When I arrived, Peace and Jesus in its present form uh, had been going for about 12 years. Uh, Roger Simpson had been called from London to plant the church along with 60 or 70 people from St. Thomas's Christoph, and new people had joined the church. Lots of new initiatives had been begun. Um, there'd been something called the pub church, where 40 or 50 people had been meeting in a pub on a Sunday morning. Uh, that had just closed when I arrived. Um, and what I discerned was that it was a bit like a 12 or 13 year old child. Um, Robert Gordon referred to uh, this last night at the Cayley when he, he called P's and G's when I arrived a bit like an adolescent. There were lots of questions about who are we? Uh, what's our identity? What are we going to do? What are we going to be when we grow up? And there was lots of sort of angst around as well. And that's what I discerned when I came. And together with Michael Maudsley, who was the rector, um, he'd been the re- associate with uh, Roger, and then he'd taken over as rector. Um, things had felt a bit uncertain. All of those questions, what should we do? Who am I? What do other people think of us? All those questions that are around in the teenage years were around with P's and G's. And so Michael and I began a period of reassessing who we were as a church and what we sensed God was asking of us. 
What did it mean for us to be true to that picture? Some of you heard this many, many times, but about five or six years before Roger Simpson came, um, when the congregation was down to about 20, there was a woman called Lorna, and she was praying before a morning service, quite a strict, straight, liturgical um, morning prayer service. And about five minutes before the service began, she had a vision. And in the vision, the roof became filled with angels. It wasn't filled with air conditioning and fire, uh, fire fighting stuff and smoke extraction systems as it is now. It was filled with angels. And in the vision, that wall onto your place disappeared. And she saw hundreds of young people from all around the world, from all ets and pets in her terminology, queuing to get into the church building. Now that vision has been fulfilled numerous times over the last 30 years. But what we wanted to discern in 1996 to 1998 was, well, what did it mean for us as we started to take the church forward? What would it be, mean to be true to that vision? We went through a period of realignment. At times, it was quite painful. We had to say goodbye to some staff members who were really good people, but we discerned we didn't need that particular post or we needed a different type of staffing in the future. And it was a tough time at periods. We narrowed the focus of the church. This time was also characterized by three untimely deaths. Um, Linda Fishbacker, who was married to Steve, who was our youth and children's director, um, she died about a year later after I arrived. Um, and Linda's death and the way in which the church had prayed for her physical healing, but then had had to cope and coped with her dying and death was a really tough time for the church. Just after that, Tom Yarrow, who was a 12-year-old boy with learning difficulties, right at the center, literally, he would sit here and shout and clap during all the worship, he died. And again, one of the most moving things of, of my ministry and of my life was, was sitting with Sheila, his mum, and Ross, his brother, and turning off the life support system and praying Tom into God's presence. Tom's father had died some years before when he was very young. And there was just this sense of Tom being set free from his blindness and his learning difficulties and just running literally into his father's arms. Not just God the father's arms, but, but Richard, his dad's arms. So we had Linda who died, we had Tom who died, and then in the early noughties, um, two people who were on the Alpha team went walking in Ben Nevis, Katie and Charlie. Katie had become a Christian on the Alpha course, a bit like Ailey did um, in the late 1990s, and now she was serving on the Alpha team. They were walking across the ridge at Ben Nevis, there was an avalanche, and they fell 500 feet. Katie was taken to the Southern Hospital in Glasgow. She was paralyzed from the neck down. And I went to visit her. And I remember holding her hand and, and hearing her story and her heartbroken anguish as she told me about the way in which they'd fallen 500 feet. And she looked across about 50 yards away to where Charlie was. And she realized he died. 
and they'd hoped to be married within 18 months. Both of them training to be doctors. And I said, Katie, where is God in this? Do you sense God close at this point? And I'll never forget, she just looked at me and said, Dave, God is so close. He's so close. I can almost reach out and touch him. And the next few years were very, very tough for Katie. She never recovered well enough to resume her medical career. She is getting married in the next couple of months, but it's been a a long haul for Katie. And that sense of tragedy and pain and suffering has always been a feature of the life of, of P's and G's. Some people will say when they haven't been to P's and G's, are you just a happy, clappy church? You're just a sort of superficial church. And then they come and they're around us for a while. And we've had people who are training for the ordained ministry come for, for three or six months and they've always said the same thing at the end of it. You're not the church I thought you were because you face life full on and you face the reality of faith and life and suffering and pain and the paradox of all that and you don't duck the hard questions and you work through it with faith and with honesty and with conviction. At the same time came Michael's suggestion that he and I swap roles remarkable gesture of humility and generosity and grace. Um, Michael came to me and said, I was associate with, with Roger. I'm a pastor. Why don't you become the rector and I'll go back to being the associate? And so we swapped roles. It was a remarkable thing for him to say and do. Just this week, I've had an email from New Zealand and somebody from the States was talking to me as well, saying I've quoted um, that example of Michael's so many times over the last 20 years. It was an incredibly generous gesture of his. Within months, he looked years younger. (laughs) What you see is what you get in front of you today. So that was chapter one. Chapter 2, 2001 to 2006, a period of projects, planning, and prayer. We devised our first five-year strategy. We began this thing called ICON, a monthly event for people who weren't Christians that we used to hold up at the hub. Uh, That's a picture of what the building used to look like. That was with some extra stage lights at the back. It was dark in those days. This wonderful color scheme of pink walls at the top half and gray on the bottom. Beautiful. (laughs) Lots of creativity, lots of energy. The infamous line on our new five-year plan, I quote, we will take seriously the implications of outreach for our present buildings. We could remove the pews, carpet, and renew the flooring, and we want to create a place where the wanderer can encounter God safely. And so began Project 21. We had visits of Bishop Michael Bourne, Archbishop Kalini, who is the Bishop of Rwanda, didn't know we were thinking about doing a building project. I said, is there anything you want to say to us as a congregation? He looked out on the church and said, you must make this place bigger so that more people can hear about Jesus. It was a prophetic word exactly when we needed it. I remember some very, 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 very long vestry meetings that carried on until way past midnight. 
They were really hard slogs. Then the first pledge day, when we asked you as a church to support the building project. Never forget the evening service when Graham Scrimger, who is the treasurer, uh, came out of the door that used to be there, because that was the door into the, the vestry. And uh, he came out, and the idea was that he would walk to the front, hand Duncan McLaren, who is one of the associate rectors, and Duncan would then get up and announce the total. Uh, Graham walked out, being a sort of Scottish accountant, very sort of straight-faced and just kept de deadpan. There was another member of the P21 team who walked out behind him, who'd been counting the pledges, who just looked at me across and went... <laughs> so the game was sort of given away, really. But I remember, never forget hearing Duncan stand up and saying that you as a church had pledged on one day £2.8 million. We moved out to Pollock Halls for two and a half years, another pledge day, another £2.1 million that you pledged in addition to the £2.2 million that you'd already given. And then finally the move back to the building, finally at last exhausted, we returned to the building. And now out of a total cost of £6.9 million, we only owe £300,000. It's remarkable generosity and remarkable faith that you showed as a church. And at the same time, our general fund has increased from 350,000 in 2001 to 850,000 today. And our global focus giving has more than doubled at the same time. So lots of prayer, lots of planning, but an amazing period. Chapter 3 was a tough one. You can see Hazel and Kieran, who were our children's and youth director at the time, um, having to take some uh, liquid refreshment with fondues. Fondues were big uh, in the early uh, 1980s. Um, <laughs> But it was a period of, of more uncertainty. Um, we were a very tired church. I don't think many of us who were around actually realized how tired we were. I was a very, very tired rector. And this was, if I'm honest, the, perhaps the most difficult period and the closest I came uh, to leaving. Um, should I stay? Did P's and G's need somebody different for the next chapter? Um, Kathy and I have known what it is to be part of a church where the rector stayed too long. I've never wanted to be the cork in the bottle that stopped the growth of the church. And so every two or three years, Kathy and I say to God, do you want us to stay? Is it right that we stay? Does P's and G's need somebody different to lead it? Do I need a fresh challenge? We searched for a new associate rector. For two years, we couldn't find one. Questions were asked, tension emerged. The staff were unbelievably loyal and hardworking. And then at a leadership conference, the first HDB leadership conference, I sensed God speaking to me. God said, I'm giving you a new mantle of leadership for P's and G's. It's a new chapter. A new team will be built around you for the new chapter. And it was chapter four. The cavalry arrived and Rich and Vanessa and Dean came. That is a rare sight. That is the lesser-spotted cornfield uh, wearing a dog collar. A dog collar that I had to lend him for the occasion because he hadn't got one. But uh, that, was, that was a pretty special chapter and uh, a period if you like, of digging ditches of refreshment and renewal, if you look at 2 Kings chapter 3, we sense God just calling us to dig ditches, to get things ready so that then the Spirit would come in a fresh way and start to, to fill to overflowing. 
We sense God giving us those four strategic arrows, discipleship, theological education, social transformation, and church planting. And we began, we grafted uh, a church into Fife uh, with Dean leading it. We began the School of Theology under Vanessa. And after about two years of thinking and praying and searching, um, we began Soul Food. And it's been a quite remarkable chapter in the life of this church. Uh, Rich took about two years to think and to pray. Two phrases um, stand out for me from this time. One was from Archbishop uh, Rowan Williams, who had been recently to the Sudan and China. And at a conference I was at, he was asked a question, what do you see from the church in China and the church in the Sudan, something that the church in the UK might learn from? And he said, there are two, one thing that really struck me, he said, the churches are meeting a need that nobody else is meeting. The churches are meeting a need that nobody else is meeting. And that resonated with us. And we began to pray and to discuss and to talk. And after two years of, of thinking and praying, Rich discovered that the worst time for somebody who's on the margins or homeless in a city in the UK it's between the hours of 5 o'clock and 8 o'clock on a Saturday evening. Everybody else is watching football or watching X Factor or Strictly or whatever, Doctor Who. The hostels aren't open and people are left to their own devices on the streets. And so we started Soul Food and now we feed over 100 people every week and over 50 of you volunteer week by week to staff it. And it's been a quite remarkable growth. But another phrase was a question that Craig Irvin, who's now on the vestry and was a graduate of Alpha um, at least 10 years ago, uh, he was on the strategy group, and at one stage he listened to us, and he, he simply said these words. He said, are we being too safe? Peace and Jesus is always at its best when it's being pushed out of its comfort zone. What is God calling us to do? What is God calling us to do if he's calling us to go out into the deep, to the far side of the lake where people think God isn't and where God doesn't live? What if God is calling us to follow his leading because in that word from Joshua, we have never been this way before? And so what we want to do this morning is announce to you the next bit of the story. Over the last 10 months, Rich and I have been talking and praying, and he senses God calling him to plant a church out of P's and G's with social transformation at its heart. It is, if you like, a development of soul food into a worshipping community. Now, we don't know where it will be. Um, our timetable, that might not be the same as God's, uh, is that next Easter, 50 or 60 people might go with Rich somewhere in the city to begin something new. We've talked to the bishop, we've talked to the diocese, and they're open and they're welcoming our proposal. But please pray for Rich and for Jenny as they get a small group together to scope it out over the summer and to pray together and to listen to what God is saying to them. It will mean a challenge for them who go, or for you who go, and it will mean a challenge for those of us who are left behind as well. And so begins chapter 5. Different chapters but common themes. A reliance on God, remarkable generosity and faith, taking life, faith and suffering seriously, being open to what God is saying and how God is leading because we have never been this way before. 
It isn't in the end about plans or strategies, but about individual lives being given over to God. People coming to know Jesus or rediscovering God's amazing grace and love. People like Katie and Charlie. People like Ailey and Craig, who've come on Alpha over the years and have found Jesus for the first time. I did my first Alpha course 23 years ago. I can't tell you how much lasagna I have eaten in the name of Jesus. It's a lot. But Alpha is just the best thing because you get to be on the front row of seeing people become Christian, just like Ailey described. It's been a story of people who've lived incredibly faithful lives, like Betty and Dido, who were members of the existing congregation when I came. People like Gwyn and June, Joyce and Frank and Donald, who are now cheering us on from eternity. It's been a story of doing things that churches in Scotland either weren't or aren't doing. Things like having a staff team. It's normative down in England, but in Scotland it's quite unusual. Remarkable growth in our children's work under first Hazel and then Gemma. Just incredible. 150 naught to 11-year-olds that call this church home. That is unusual in the church in the UK. Remarkable youth work under Steve Fishbacker and then Kieran, and then, God bless him, John White, and, uh, and now James. Contemporary worship, and then having the, the courage to, to do things like seed fund new charities. Do you know, as a church, we seed funded Fishy Music, Soul Marks, and the Coracle Trust, three charities that are now making a difference across Scotland. There are at least 11 people now in or training for ordained ministry who've felt a call over the last 20 years. We've been privileged to have interns and international students from America, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. And I can't tell you what a challenge it is to look out on a congregation and realize that the passage you're preaching on, the verse that you're preaching on, is somebody in the congregation's PhD thesis that they have spent six years on and they will always know more than you will ever know and you're trying to explain and it's you get that moment where you say something in a talk and you look at the person that you know it's their PhD thesis and you either get a... or the really bad bit is when they go... and you're just dead in the water. Realising this week about all the weddings and the baptisms and the funerals, it was amazing last night at the Cayley to see so many wedding photographs, uh, most of which, apart from one, were legal. Um, that's the Williamsons, if you want to ask them about that. That's my first one. They, were, they are legally married now, but it took a while. Um, people like the Kimbers and the Dines, realizing that I was at both their weddings and have baptized all seven of their children. It's quite scary. There have been tough times. There have been some tears, some frustration, some anger, but there's been lots of joy, a lot of grace, remarkable creativity and a lot of laughter. I think one of the things that I would always think about P's and G's is that whenever I leave, and it's not yet, is lots of laughter. I have to say that the staff team that we've got at the moment, I have never laughed as much with people than I work alongside. 
Never laughed at them as much, but with them, and they've laughed at me as well. We just have such fun. Kathy often says, I wish I, I not, she doesn't often say, I wish I worked with you, but she said, I, I wish my job was as much fun as yours. Because it is just a privilege to work with these people. You are so well served as a church with a staff team that you have working for you. When I've let you down, then I do want to say that I apologize. When I've disappointed, I'm sorry. But thank you for being the church that you are. It's been a privilege to serve you through leading you for the last 20 years. And I do sense that I should be here for a few years yet. And I do want to say thank you to the staff for their incredibly, well, remarkable loyalty and support over so many years, particularly in the tough times. And the fact that Hazel has, has come back for this weekend and Nate has come all the way from, from New Jersey just for me. Uh, he, he'll be here tonight. He was at the Cayley last night. He had a holiday. That's why he came. It wasn't just for me. Um, but that says a lot. Um, I want to say thank you to the vestries, particularly those of you who've chaired vestries or been members of vestries. I want to say thank you to Di, to Alistair, to Mark, to Alison, to Douglas, to Roderick, and to Robert. You have been so encouraging over the years. And I do want to say thank you to Cathy. Um, thank you for all the help behind the scenes, uh, for bringing up the kids when I wasn't there, and for all the evenings when I was out at church meetings and able to watch the TV that you wanted to watch. Um, but it has been a huge cost for Cathy. Um, lots of evenings when I wasn't there. One of the great things about the sabbaticals that you give staff, and I've got another one coming up, is that we have two months without any evening meetings. And that is a real gift. Um, but thanks, love. But above all, thanks to God. A God who uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. People like you and people like me. And a God who, it seems to me, delights in saying, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. It's amazing, isn't it, that whenever God commissions a person or a people, he always says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because he knows that's our first instinct. So whatever God is calling us to in the future, whatever God is calling Rich to in the future, whatever God calls me to in the future, that simple word, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. Then you will know the way to go, since you have never been this way before.